0: Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, and Psalm 86, verse 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well. I hope you had a good week uh, as we enter and come together to, uh, on this Lord's Day, uh, to hear God's word and to worship him. Uh, I I was, I've been uh, so encouraged this week, Uh, just from our Journey Canada webinar yesterday and just how refreshing it was as a church. We could uh, share and talk about these deeper issues. We also had Alpha Day. Uh, I was um, it was interesting. It was our first Alpha Day we did online, but it was a full house. Uh, and it was, it was uh, God answers uh, in miraculous ways. And just this morning, from everyone sharing, to the worship music, to uh, the pre-service video, everything all the way through, uh, I'm just very joyful to be here and uh, to, to, to worship God uh, together with you. Uh, I'm going to um, say a quick word of prayer to commit this time to the Lord again. Uh, Father, I thank you that you're a good God. Uh, thank you, God, that uh, you know us and you love us. And this morning, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, will fill this place, fill our homes, fill our hearts, and give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and the hearts to comprehend you this morning, even though there's so many things going on in our lives and also in the world. Uh, May we know today that you are still good and that you're still God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing on on our series uh, called Faith in Life and Why We Believe What We Believe. And today we're addressing the question. Uh, every week's a big question, and in our life groups, you've been wrestling through these questions already, and uh, it's really hard with the time given. Uh, but we're addressing the question of why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? Uh, the question could also uh, be reframed in these other ways: as how could a good God allow evil? Or some also refer to it as it as the problem of pain, the problem of evil. Uh, which many within the church and also uh, those that don't call themselves Christians wrestle with this issue. Why is there evil? If there is a good God, why is there pain and evil and suffering in the world? And a theological word that we throw around is this word theodicy, which is the explanation of God's goodness in the face of evil and suffering. So theodicy is the defense of it or an explanation of it, of understanding how there is a good God, but there's also pain and suffering. And that's what we're going to try to do uh, today. And maybe like me, you were also shocked uh, this week uh, when you heard how there were 215 children uh, found, uh, buried in a BC residential, underneath the BC residential school in Kamloops. Uh, this residential school was opened um, It was actually open all the way to 1978. So that actually wasn't that long ago that the school remained open. And when I first heard this news and read it and saw it on on, on TV, uh, it was just horrifying. It really shook the core of my being, thinking 215 kids uh, were taken from their homes. Uh, 215 kids never got to see their parents again, and the families wondering if these kids would ever come back. This is a horrible a, a tragedy uh, to say the least where these families and these lives were shaken up forever. And what's even worse, if I could say that, is that for most of this history of this school, it was under the administration of the Catholic church. I, I think that makes it even more worse. It was under the, the, um, the administration of a church and it was all from all the way up to 1969. Then the federal government took over and until it closed in 78, but no amount of words, And actions can deny the responsibilities of the church in this as well. Uh, We'll address that topic next week uh, in terms of how come the church uh, and our church's history has been involved with so much pain, uh, so much evil, and so much suffering as well. But in light of news like this, why does God allow suffering? Like, how can a good God allow bad things like this to happen? Now, as we move on, I want to suggest this big idea for us this morning, that even in light of all the evil, all the suffering, all the pain, we have a great God who knows us greatly. That, that's the big idea I want to paint and put over us this morning as we go into the word. Uh, that We have a great God uh, who knows us greatly, each and every single uh, one of us. But as I expand, before I expand on that a little bit more, there are a few ways we could address this question the problem of pain, the problem of evil, this theodicy, however you want to frame it. And, and if you've taken any philosophy courses before, if you've heard this sermon, uh, parts of the sermon where I've addressed this before, you would have heard this, that there's a classical argument for the problem of evil. And it's this, that if an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God exists, then evil does not. That's point number one. Number Belief number two, that, however, we see that there is evil in the world. Therefore, logically speaking, the logical problem of evil leads us to think this, that therefore an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God does not exist. Right? So if there's an all-powerful God, evil shouldn't be there because he knows everything. He can do everything about it. But evil does exist. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And this might seem like it makes sense uh, logically as I read it out that way, but does it really and why I'm pushing back on that is that if God is truly omnipotent and is truly omnipresent and truly omniscient, meaning he knows all things and he, he can do all things, then is it possible, is it possible? I want to humbly suggest to us this morning that he would know something that we don't. If he is truly, if we believe that and he is omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent, omni everything that he could do and know something that we as human beings do not. We need to at least entertain that idea. We have to at least agree that that is a possibility. However, when we make statements like this, which is many in the world, and maybe we wrestle with it today here too. That when we make statements like this, what we're really saying is that we know better than God, you know, God's omni- omniscient. He knows all things, but I actually know more. So actually I'm omniscient. I know better than this God. We are the judge. We are the definer of what is good what is righteous? What is justice? And this kind of thinking goes over, not just in the problem of evil, but in terms of biblical interpretation, in terms of understanding God's word, like, you know what, this is what God's word says, but I know better. You know, I'm more cultured. I'm more educated. I I am more, I'm further along. I'm 2000 years later than Jesus. So I'm more evolved than Jesus than this God. So I know better. So if I were to reframe this classic argument for the problem of evil, what we're really saying Is this We cannot think of any justifiable reason why God will allow suffering and evil to continue. Therefore, God cannot have such a reason. We have placed ourselves above God. We have placed ourselves in the seat of God, thinking that we know best and we understand best. And in fact, if you ask many of the philosophers and the deep thinkers of the faith and in philosophy, evil and suffering actually isn't evidence against God. That's not the question that they're asking. Uh, Just because evil appears to be pointless to me, doesn't mean that it's pointless because as human beings, if we understand our views are limited, our our views of history, our views of what's really going on around us and of reality is, is, is limited. And just because we can't think of a good reason, it doesn't mean there isn't one. So in fact, uh, it's interesting. C.S. Lewis uh, argued that suffering wasn't evidence against God. He actually argued that it's evidence for God. So he took this whole thing and flipped it all, all, all around. And and what, what he what he in his thinking of 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 pain and suffering why there is such a thing as cr- uh, cr- um, the world is so cruel and unjust he came to realize and ask this question as he was thinking about why the world has so much pain and suffering why there's so much evil he came to ask this question how did we how did I come to realize there is such a thing as cruelty and injustice to begin with like how come I know there is evil how come I know there is pain how come I know there is is suffering. After all, as C.S. Lewis would argue, that if there is no God, or we don't believe in God, then there really isn't a standard for morality to begin with. Like that question of why is there justice and evil if you don't believe in God is irrelevant, actually. That, that's what he's, he's, he's arguing. There isn't a good reason for why we should be so outraged, actually, if we don't believe in God, why we shouldn't be so outraged by evil and suffering because there's no standard for morality death and destruction is actually natural. Ask Darwin, the strongest survive, right? So I can go around the world as pillaging. Like that's the natural way of things. Like if I don't believe in God, I, I shouldn't have an issue with it, if justice and, and cruelty and evil, but we do at the bottom line as human beings, we do have an issue with it. So we come now to this point where when people are asking about suffering, it usually is not a philosophical question, which we try to answer and tackle and can argue till the cows come home and, and it doesn't really go, go anywhere. But it's not so much a philosophical question as, as much as it is a personal question. It is a personal question. This means we can't talk to people in this way as as if it's a merely philosophical debate, which we can easily get trapped into because that's what maybe we want to want to do. But in these moments, when we're talking about pain and suffering and evil and why we experience what we experience, in these moments, people don't want to hear about the reasons for suffering, like the reasons for, and, and try to explain it away. People have tried to come up with good reasons for why God allows evil. Like, could you imagine if someone's asking why, the, why there's pain and suffering? How come this is happening in my family? And we come up with reasons like this. Like, the two most common theodicies that we can come up with is the punishment theod- uh, theodicy. Remember, theodicy is the explanation of how we try to reconcile a good God with evil in the world. The punishment theod- theodicy, because humankind rebelled, the suffering of the world is the, is the deserved punishment for sin. Can you imagine like, what, what, you know, why are we going through evil and suffering? And we, this is the ex- first explanation <laughs> that, that would, that we give to it, or maybe the free will theodicy. If God wanted people to freely choose the good, they would have to have been free to choose evil. The greater good of having true children rather than robots entails the risk of abuse of free will, but that still doesn't explain the question. Well, why did my kid pass away? Like, what did I do? why is there pain and suffering in the world why why is my family or the world in this certain state you see both when we try to theologize and and, and put this out there uh, they have merit but again we i don't believe there's a time and place for a philosophical debate but people need a personal reason uh, because and we need to give a personal reason because we follow a personal god a god that knows us and understands us and understands our pain and suffering. I don't know why three high school students this week died in a car crash in Kelowna and why that was the time and why that that happened. I don't know why uh, 215 kids are buried underneath the residential school or why uh, you had this catastrophic injury or how someone will have to live with the rest of their life with certain mistakes that others have made or why you know that person that has that terminal illness. Like we can't explain the reason why or necessarily give a good reason. And quite honestly, there isn't always a good reason for why there is suffering, right? There isn't always a good, good reason, but you see, I want to suggest this, that we have a great God that knows us greatly. And what that means is that Christianity offers more than reasons for our, our suffering. Christianity might not provide a reason for each and every experience of pain that you go through, but it provides deep resources for us. It's a well, Uh, As we come before God, as we face suffering, because we receive this hope and this courage rather than bitterness and despair. Christianity helps us to have hope when everything seems hopeless. Christianity in our belief in this Jesus gives us joy when everything seems joyless. And we might not know why suffering and pain happens, but as D.A. Carson says in his book, How Long, O Lord, to walk into the unknown with a God of unqualified power and unfailing goodness is safer than any known way. That in in our suffering, in our pain, even though we don't know what's going on, we have a God that knows. He doesn't just know the way, but he knows us. He knows what we are going through. And we can find comfort in our suffering, not because the suffering is good per se, but because of the person of Jesus. Remember last week, I said Christianity is the way because Jesus is the way. And we can say that we can find hope and comfort and joy and peace in suffering because of Jesus, because of this person. I want to share the story on uh, May 25th, uh, 2006. There's a climber named Lincoln Hall. Uh, This is him here. He was left for dead uh, by his guides on the side of Mount Everest. Uh, the next day, his crew, uh, who made it back down the mountain, released a statement announcing his death. Well, little did they know, Hall was actually very much alive, uh, but he was in a very dire circumstance. He was suffering from altitude sickness, uh, which had caused him to be disorientated. So he was wandering alone on the mountain with no hat, no gloves, and no oxygen tank. Uh, and there's pictures of him with his frostbite. I'm not going to show, show those pictures, but a day later, uh, Daniel Mazur and his climbing group came across Hull, who was just lying on the side of the path. And Mazur, who was just two hours away, two hours away from the peak, two hours away from Everest glory, he abandoned his Everest quest and left his party to carry Hull down to the camp, all the way back down to the base of the camp, which was a four-hour trek, carrying this man down, down the mountain. And this was such a momentous uh, and encouraging story because just days before, Another climber, David Sharp, he died uh, 300 meters away from the, from the, from the, um, from the summit of Mount Everest. But the controversy is that dozens of people passed him as he laid there dying. Why? Because they didn't want to risk their own Everest glory. They didn't want to risk their glory. We're only 300 meters away. I don't have time for this guy here. I got to go. And that man, he died. You see, Jesus went on a rescue mission to save humanity. Jesus went on a rescue mission to save humanity. He came to earth, didn't just walk past us in our suffering, in our pain, in our hurting, in the moment that we need most. Jesus came straight to us on on a rescue mission when we were headed for death. He didn't walk past us or walk over us or ignore us. He stopped. He more than stopped. He took the time to empathize with us, uh, to understand us. As it says in Hebrews 4, 14, 15 in the passage today, therefore we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And I need to say this, this morning that there's an assumption that just because there is evil this means that God doesn't care about us. And we make that natural connection because there's evil, because there's pain and suffering, that God doesn't care about us. But that is not true. Here we see in Hebrews 4, uh, 14 to 16, that the first thing the writer helps us to see is that we have a good God, that there is a good God there for us. This passage starts with, since we have a great high priest, or in other translation, seeing then, Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Uh, if we ever find ourselves in a time of loss, in a time of suffering, we're not to look to the, to the pain, but we're to look to the person of Jesus. That we're not to look in the pain. I'm not saying to ignore it, to, to ignore that it doesn't happen or it's not real. I'm saying, even in light of the pain, in light of the reality of the pain, that we're to look into the greater reality of Jesus and who he is and to remind us of that. Because we have a great high priest, and the role of a priest was to act as a mediator, the in-between person uh, in the Old Testament, between us and God. In ancient Israel, the Israelites couldn't go to God directly. The priests had to go and make the sacrifice on behalf of the people uh, so that the people can be forgiven uh, because there was a debt that needed to be paid, and this debt was paid through giving of the sacrifice, which the priests had to do. But here, the Hebrew writer says, we don't only have, the writer of Hebrews says, we don't only have a priest or a high priest, but a great high priest. Uh, where this word for great is megas, uh, where we get the English word mega, <laughs> mega from. So we have a mega high priest, mega meaning superior, superior. He's being above the standard, not in quality, but in intensity. Like whatever it is, God, Jesus is intense and over and above what we could expect over the standard of what we could hope for. Our great high priest who is able to bring us right before God, his uh, humanity, and also his divinity, that he's man and God as well. And he's great not only because he's a high priest, but also uh, because he ascended to heaven. That's what we read right there. Uh, he, he's not only is he in heaven, but he's enthroned. He's, he, he's enthroned. Uh, we read how he sits on a throne of grace later on verse uh, verse 16, which is not here, but there's no next slide. I, he, he's enthroned. He has a throne and he has a kingdom and it's a throne of grace. Not this Jesus doesn't have a throne of wrath. It's not a throne of anger. It's not a throne to boast of his own pride, but grace. And from this throne of grace, he gives mercy and we can find grace. He's also great because he gives this mercy and he gives this grace for all those who come so that we can receive the help that we, we need. See, this grace is receiving a gift we don't deserve. And this mercy means receiving punish, uh, not receiving punishment for something we do deserve. That this God has come before him. He's able to help us and he has only good things for us. Which, as we read earlier, which Emily read earlier in Psalm 8615, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the character and attribute of God. But there's more. We don't only have someone uh, who is seated in high positions uh, and able to give grace and able to give mercy is also able to empathize with us. That's key. Circle that in your Bibles. Highlight that. He's able to empathize with our, our, our weaknesses. Uh, this is where we actually get our, our English word sympathy, which is kind of confusing. Uh, this word for empathy is where we get the English word sympathy. <laughs> uh, but but it, the, the meaning of it is that Jesus is able to feel what we're feeling. Uh, that's the meaning of the word. Like we're able to feel, He's able to feel what we're feeling, to know what we're going through to the core of our being. And this is definitely something that I'm still learning. The first step, if you want to help someone, the first step, if you want to help someone that's in pain and suffering is to acknowledge their pain and suffering. It's to acknowledge their pain and suffering. It's to acknowledge that their pain is valid. Their pain is valid. That is to acknowledge how their pain is worthy of an empathetic response. Not to be thrown away, not to be walked over, not to chase after Everest and chase after our own agenda, but, but to stop and to, to, and to acknowledge someone's pain, to, to say, I might not know it fully, but I acknowledge you. It, it's, that is what you're feeling. And though I might not be perfect and empathizing with someone all the time, I'm still learning uh, because often, maybe we, we don't have an explanation, a reasoning that I can really give. I fumble with my words. Uh, we think of the book of Job, right? And all, all his friends trying to reason, and you know sometimes it's better to be quiet. And <laughs> to sit and acknowledge someone's, someone's pain. But the point is here that Jesus was no stranger to suffering. He was no stranger to pain. He was, as he was ministering on earth, he experienced all that we experience and more. He knows what you are going through and more actually, not to one-up you, but that's just theologically how we understand God who experiences all things infinitely. That, that God experiences everything infinitely more than what we experience. So why is there suffering in uh, in the world and how can a good god allow pain and evil we might not come down to a reason or a explanation that satisfies everyone but we can say this if we look at the cross we may not know why suffering happens but when we look at the cross is that it can't be that god doesn't love us I hope you're following that as we look at the cross, even though we can't explain the suffering and the pain and have a perfect reason for it, what we do know as we look at the cross is that it can't be because God doesn't love us. It can't be because God doesn't know us. It can't be because God doesn't care about you. And when we look at the cross, we see that a good God was not distant in our suffering, but he was with us in our suffering, that we have a great God that knows us greatly to the point that he left his throne of grace in heaven to come down to live among us, to be with us. Philip Yancey in his book, Where Is God When It Hurts? And I do highly recommend it. Philip Yancey's books on on suffering are are very good in explaining and helping us understand. One of his books, Where Is God When It Hurts? He says this, The fact that Jesus came to earth where he suffered and died does not remove pain from our lives, but it does show that God did not sit idly by and watch us suffer in isolation. He became one of us. Thus, in Jesus, God gives us an up-close and personal look at his response to human suffering. All our questions about God and suffering should, in fact, be filtered through what we know about Jesus. As we rely on God and trust his spirit to mold us in his image, true hope takes shape within us a hope that does not disappoint. We can literally become better persons because of suffering. Pain, however meaningless it may seem at that time, can be transformed. Where is God when it hurts? He is in us, not in the things that hurt, helping to transform bad into good. We can rely safely say that God can bring good out of evil. We cannot say that God brings about the evil in hopes of producing good. I love that that we can say here. Where is God when it hurts? He is in us. He is with us. He's empathizing with us. And when we look at Jesus on the cross, when we're witnessing, is Jesus being cut off from God? We're witnessing God suffer, not just physically, but more importantly, here's relational. It's a relational loss and suffering that He's going through. And maybe some of you have experienced a bad breakup. Uh, a bad breakup in a relationship uh, or broken relationship in your family or with your friends. Uh, if you've gone through something like that or any emotional uh, relational turmoil, uh, y- you would understand the inner agony, you know, that experience of being separated from someone, that brokenness, that separation, there's something between you and that kind of, that, that, that kind of pain and um, discomfort within you. Well, now imagine God, the infinite love between God and Jesus, Because for eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were a perfect unity, the Trinity. They're perfectly united for eternity past. And for this moment on the cross, he was separated. And that experience that he went through on the cross, Jesus experienced that infinitely. When Jesus was on the cross, as he cried out in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That wasn't about physical pain. That was about relational loss of the deeply relational statement because God is infinite. He experienced that moment infinitely, that pain infinitely. And why did he do it? To empathize with us, to understand us and even more to give us salvation, to give us new life, to give us hope in the pain and joy when things are joyless among many differences. What makes Christianity so different than any other religion in the world, is that God came down as a person and died. There's many differences, but that is one of the hugest and and most prominent ones. That Christianity is the only religion with a God who suffers. And he went through torture, rejection, humiliation, and a death that was worse than most on the cross. And when people see that, From other religions or non-Christians see that and say that this is a Christian God, they cannot understand that. Why would God do something like that? When you are seated in glory, the human way is you stay in glory. You boast in your glory. Uh, You live in that glory, but God gave up that to be with us. And there are some in the world who cannot make sense of this, but here as Christians, as believers and followers of Jesus, we understand we have a great God that knows us greatly. And he displayed that on the cross. And why did Jesus do it? Again, because he was on a rescue mission. He was on a rescue mission. And it was a rescue mission motivated by love. He came to earth and didn't walk past us. He didn't walk past your pain, walk past your suffering, walk past every experience you've gone through. But he stopped and he listened. And he held you and he picked us up and he lifted our heads. And he said, as I'm picking you up, you look at the cross, you look at the cross and you see how much I love you, that you're hurting now and everything in the world is terrible. And that is true. And I affirm that and you acknowledge that then you, but look at the cross and see what I am doing to make things right. See what I am doing to make things right. See how in the pain and the suffering, I am doing something new. In the pain and the suffering, the agony of the cross, I am doing something new. I am turning beauty from the ashes. Look at the tomb and see how even a place of death would be a place of rejoicing for me. Because death can't hold me down. And he said, as there is so much pain and suffering in the world of what you're going through, as you're suffering, focus on me, fix your eyes on me and see how much I love you. That's why the writer of Hebrews ends the section saying, let us then approach God's throne of grace. Knowing all that, understanding all that, know, understanding how we have a great God, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with confidence so that we have we may receive mercy and find grace To help us in our time of need, we're called to approach the throne of grace, a place that was once off limits, where we needed a priest and someone in between to have this relationship with us. But now God's saying, You can approach my throne directly yourself, and not timidly, not in a shy way, but with confidence. It's in this time of need that we approach God, not in a way of cowardice, but with confidence. Knowing that he hears us, a confidence that he hears us, a confidence that he cares, confidence that he is who he says he is, a confidence that he actually wants us to be there, that we're not a nuisance to him. It's not like we're knocking at the door of heaven. He's like, what do you want? He's like, I've been expecting you. I've been here the whole time in your pain and your suffering. When you're searching for all the answers and the things of the world, I've been here the whole time waiting for you wanting to be with you, wanting to give you that hope and that joy and that meaning, that identity that you've been searching for and all the other things of the world. I've been here with you and for you. And because of this, no trial is too great for you because we have this great God. No trial is too great. Even though you feel like temptation is too much, the trial is too great. We have a God here who says he is with us. He's empathizing with us. He is our fortress. He's that anchor that holds us down in the storm. And I want to say this. I need to say this, that if we fail to hold fast to our confession here, which in the beginning it says, be, because we have this great high priest, we can hold on to this profession that we have, right? If we fail to hold on to our profession in the same way, because there's evil and suffering in the world, we cannot say that Jesus has failed that cannot be our reasoning behind it. It's not because Jesus has failed. When we fail to hold on to our confession and profession of Jesus, it's not because Jesus has failed. It's not because God hasn't held on to his part of the bargain and his deal. When there's pain and suffering in the world, it's not because God has failed or the Holy Spirit isn't moving or that Jesus isn't who he says he is. When there's pain and suffering in the world, it's not because of God who's failed, it's because of humanity. The weakness in the equation isn't God. It, it's his it's humanity, which leads into next week, uh, in, into that conversation. But I want to end this morning by reading Psalm 27, four to four, uh, verses 4 to 5 and verse 7. It says this. The psalmist says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple for in a day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He'll hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Even though we may not know the answer to why there is pain and suffering for everyone, who we do know that there is a God that cares a God that knows us, a, God, a great God that knows you greatly. So the question remains for us is, who do you go to in times of trouble? Who do you seek when you're suffering? Do we go towards God's throne of grace with confidence or do we run to everything else? And anything else but God. And it is Jesus who gives you strength. It's Jesus that gives you strength that we need. When we're at the end of ourselves and we're about to call it quits, this means that we don't have to give up because Jesus is our hope. And when we're going through trials and testing and suffering, may we run towards God because God's arms are wide open waiting for us. And for those of you that are hurting and have experienced pain and suffering, know that God is with you. He's with you this morning. And you're wondering and asking that question, where are you, God? He is right there with you. He's with you in your suffering. He understands you. And for those of you who have experienced the love and know of this piece of Jesus, it's our responsibility. No, it's it's, it's our privilege to go and declare this. As we see the world in suffering and as we see the world in pain, we're not to stand idly by and be like, well, that's it. We have this privilege to be part of God's restoration work in the world. And some of you are called into this work and we're all, it's very specifically, but we're all called generally to be part of God's reconciliation work. But each one of you is called specifically in your own context, in your own gifting, in your own places, in your own homes, in your own families. That that is where God is calling you to help with healing to help with restoration, to help declare that we have a great God that knows us greatly. And that's your missions field right then and right there. We have a great God that knows us greatly. And we have a great responsibility and privilege to tell the world of this great love. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And I know that my words in all human words fall short of how good you are, how glorious you are. So Father, I pray for each and every single one of us as we wrestled with this personal question, why is there evil and suffering? Why am I going through what I'm going through now? Why is my friend or my family going through that or the world in a state that it's in? And Father, I pray that you would personally come into our lives. And may we run towards you with confidence, knowing God that you know what you're doing, that you are great and that you know us greatly. May we go into the Father's arms and know, Lord, despite the evil and the pain, even though we don't have an answer, may we look upon the cross and may we say, it cannot be because you do not love us, because you do. And you displayed that for us. So may we experience this love of Christ today. And may we know deeply in our souls That you are good and that you are great. And may our souls receive this peace and this joy.